When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Yukura. We're recording on Saturday, May 7th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. Are you feeling a little under the weather? <laughs> I am feeling under the weather. I tested positive for COVID this week, so I've been stuck in my house Ugh. and feeling gross. And, you know, that's been real fun. But I am I'm on the upswing despite what, like, my whole nose, throat situation sounds like right now. <laughs> oh, that's such a bummer. Are you able to concentrate? Like, can you read? Or are you like, no, I'm not doing anything? Um. I've been able to read a bit. I read, I finished a romance novel, um, which was fun, but ever, it's been hard to concentrate on anything like super deep, but I don't know if that's COVID or just like the world's been hard this week too. <laughs> oh yeah, that's fair. Which romance novel? Uh, it was a new one called Book Lovers by Emily Henry. She wrote, I think, Beach Read and People We Meet on Vacation. Oh, I've heard of those. They're very good, and this one was super good, and I cried a bunch at the end, but also it was a happy ending, and just, it was very funny, sort of like send-up of Hallmark movies, and the, the premise of it is what, it's a story about the, like, prickly city girlfriend that they, the protagonist will break up with when they go move to, like, their small town and find their old lost love or whatever. They always have, like, this <laughs> corporate job-focused uh, city person. Uh, and always so, so mad, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is about, uh, like, the romance of the, that city person. So if you like Hallmark movies, which um, we, my sister and I watch a lot of Hallmark movies, um, you will find a lot of that to be very funny. And I thought it had some of the best, like, banter between characters that I've read in a book in a really long time, like laugh out loud banter. So uh, I thought it was very good. What's it called again? Book Lovers, Emily Henry, highly recommended. Oh, Book Lovers. Yeah, that sounds great. I don't generally read romance, not because I am against it in general. It's more like I will read fan fiction because then I feel like I'm already invested in the characters mm -hmm. and romance is like a hard hill for me to climb because I'm like, but I'm not invested in these people. <laughs> They're just like <laughs> random characters. But I guess you could say that also about people in TV and film that I'm reading fan fiction about until I get into their story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. I can see that. I just really, I like Emily Henry. I think she does a really, like she has fun characters and her dialogue and her writing is very like vivid and descriptive. So uh, this one came out on Tuesday. And so as I was like at home being grumpy that I had tested positive for COVID, my sister was out running some errands. And I was like, buy me the Emily Henry book while you're out. And so she did. And then I read oh. it and it was great. <laughs> wow. So this is like an of the moment read. It is. Yes. It came out on Tuesday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I'm like sharing all the like on top of it recommendations. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I finished my Shackleton book. 
Oh, which, tell me more. Oh my gosh. Well, I think I've announced on Twitter that my wife, Michelle, forbade me from talking about it anymore. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> last night when I told her I finished, I was like, okay, I finished my Antarctica book. And and she just looked at me and I was like, no, 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 it was the last time. <laughs> like, um, it's, I, I, I think I knew that the Shackleton story was like, oh yeah, everyone survived. And like, you know, they were, they'd say they're whatever. They were safe after a lot of travails. But I didn't know how many travails there were. And like how unbelievable, it's like a mixture of like unbelievable luck and leadership. And like a positive attitude on the parts of the people oh. who surviving this absolutely hideous situation. Like I feel like almost anyone else would have died. And the fact that no one died out of these, like, 20-something men, like... That's, like, literally the only time that has ever happened with a story that is about something bad that happened in the Arctic yes! or Antarctic. <laughs> right? Or, like, any kind of, like, shipwreck whatever yep. situation. The fact that they're in, <laughs> like, the most dangerous sea or whatever. Yeah. Um, with, like, the worst weather. And they have minimal provision. And then you're like, oh, okay, so they finally made it to land after being on icebergs constantly that are always at risk of cracking and then everyone dies they finally make it onto land and it's still like there were 80 mile per hour winds and if they put anything down it would blow away and it was now you get a 15 and you're just like could they catch a break and the answer is no and then when they're on that land they're like we're still not going to get rescued so they have to have like five people go off in a tiny little boat and try to get to another island um which they're also very uh subject to the whims of fate and weather and then they make it, and in when they land, they have to cross these razorback glaciers. Jeez, and all they have is 50 feet of rope, and no one's ever crossed it before because it's so inhospitable. Like, I just... <laughs> ridiculous. It's ridiculous. My this is See, this is why Michelle was like, no more talking about this, because it just goes <laughs> on. But my last comment is that the most unbelievable, like, not most, but the most unbelievable thing I read most recently in that was that they're almost there. And they realize if we're stuck up on these glaciers on this final island descent and it's dark, we're going to freeze to death. And so we have to slide down. (gasps) But they didn't know. I know. They didn't know if it ended in like basically a cliff. And if they slid, they were just going to die. Fly off, like fly off the cliff? Yeah. (gasps) And they didn't want to. But Shackleton was like, look, we're definitely going to die if we don't move or we're maybe going to die if we. So they did it and they were fine. It was just like, oh, my gosh. That is terrible so anyway so i read it was endurance by alfred lansing a lot of people have read it It seems to be like the go-to book about shackleton it was really good i did it on audiobook it's got a british narrator he does different accents for the different people (laughs) (laughs) that sounds genuinely great oh my gosh okay so again yeah i've been talking a lot about shackleton (laughs) and now let's hear uh from our first sponsor for the episode all right. So with that, we'll jump into uh, nonfiction in the news, which is stories about the world of nonfiction that we think are interesting and would like to bring to your attention. So, Alice, you have both of the news stories this week. Yes, I do. So first, we've got um, – and this is, this is a little older, but Kim just talked about this in the newsletter, uh, the nonfiction newsletter, True Story. So I wanted to share it because I'm excited. Betty Gilpin uh, made a book deal with Flatiron Books for a personal essay collection – I am really excited about this. (laughs) It comes out in the fall. And it is... Betty Gilpin is the star of Glow from um, Netflix. There was that show about, like, the glamorous Mm -hmm. ladies of wrestling, which got canceled tragically before its time. 
Um, Glow is just fantastic. I love it so much. Alison Brie was also in it. Betty Gilpin's book is All the Women in My Brain and Other Concerns. If you're like, oh, another celebrity with a book, you've never read a book or an essay, I guess, an essay by Betty Gilpin. (laughs) She, her brain, (laughs) it's just like, it goes so many places. And her way with words is just chef's kiss. Like, it's so good and like unexpected and weird. Um, She wrote an article for Glamour that I've read multiple times called What It's Like to Have Pea-Sized Confidence with Watermelon-Sized Boobs. And (laughs) I know. She's like, she's so smart and she's so funny. And I'm sorry, I was wrong. It's not coming out in the fall. It's coming out in the spring. So very soon. But I'm just really excited about about this book. So that's happening. Yeah. And then also, oh, sorry, did you did you have Betty Gilpin comments? I do. I was checking Amazon because uh, I, I couldn't remember what the book cover looks like. And first of all, the book cover is amazing. It's got like Barbie doll heads on it and it's bright pink and it's so good. Uh, and uh, Amazon says it's out September 6th. Oh, so that is right. Okay. So the initial news said spring 2022, but as we all know, publication dates yeah. shift. So being pushed to fall, which is going to be great. Yes. Because then it's like, oh, the year is ending. I got to wrap up my reading. What am I going to read? Oh, what about this amazing new book from Betty Gilpin? <laughs> Perfect. Chef's kiss. <laughs> um, the other news is the uh, Los Angeles Times book prizes. Uh, the winners were announced. And we have a number of nonfiction winners, which is really exciting. So I thought we would just share those. They are for biography, Burning Boy, The Life and Work of Stephen Crane by Paul Oster. Stephen Crane wrote The Red Badge of Courage, which is a good book. Uh, Autobiographical prose, Real Estate, A Living Autobiography by Deborah Levy. Current interest, that category, is Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could by Adam Schiff. History is Cuba and American History by Ada Ferrer. I've been wanting to read that. And then Science and Technology, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space Time, and Dreams Deferred by Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein. That's another one that mm-hmm. I have been wanting to read. So just very exciting with these book awards. Yes. I was surprised to see Adam Schiff on this list. Not because I have anything against Adam Schiff. I just don't usually pick up politician books. And apparently maybe this is one that I should I love the title Cuba and American History. Like, that is a great title. Mm. And I agree. Disordered Cosmos has been on a couple of – a bunch of lists that I've seen this, and it looks looks really good. So Yeah. Yeah. Great picks. All right. So with that, we will jump into new nonfiction, which is books coming out soon or uh, that are already out that we are excited to tell you about because they sound great. My first pick this week is called The Power of Dignity, How Transforming Justice Can Heal Our Communities by Judge Victoria Pratt. Uh, comes out May 10th from Seal Press. So Victoria Pratt served as the chief judge of the New York Municipal Court. Uh, she's also a professor uh, of criminal justice, and she's also taught. Um, she has a TED Talk called How Judges Can Show Respect that has been viewed over 30 million times. Uh, and so this book is about her experiences um, bringing the idea of procedural justice or procedural fairness to uh, her municipal courtroom in New Jersey. So um, she is the daughter of a Black father and a Latina mother. She writes about her childhood and how she grew up with this idea of just like treating everyone with dignity. Her mom uh, ran a hair salon, I believe. And so she saw her mom kind of in community in her neighborhood and how the experience of just treating people respectfully made a really big difference in their lives. And so when she was uh, nominated to be the municipal court's chief judge in Newark, she knew 
Like she was familiar with the kind of issues that were going to be coming before her in the courtroom. And so she learned about this idea of procedural justice and decided to bring it to her court to see if that could make a difference in the way that people were treated, the way that they were moved through the criminal justice system, because she writes a lot about how, you know, people coming in for very minor offenses, it can kind of snowball on them because of the difficulty of paying fines or the difficulty of making it to court or all these other kinds of things. So um, the idea of procedural justice is that I'm going to quote from the it's developed by a guy named Professor Tom Tyler of Yale, Yale Law School. And describes the idea that how individuals regard the justice system is tied more to the perceived fairness of the process and how they were treated rather than to the perceived fairness of the outcome. And so it talks about how to bring a respectful voice or how to bring voice, respect, neutrality, and trustworthiness into the courtroom experience it. And so that people then experience the process as fair and then they go on kind of believing that it has been treated fairly. And so she writes about how she um, brought these principles and ideas into her courtroom and like the difference that that made for the defendants that she saw and the reputation she now has as a judge who can treat people kindly and respectfully and fairly, no matter the reason that they're in there. And so she writes about how she became the judge of second chances because she knew that most people don't get a second chance. I just, I think this one is fascinating in the way that she... Um, melds her personal experience with the experience of like her courtroom and explaining how the criminal justice system works and how from her perspective people fall through the cracks or don't receive equal treatment based on lots of systemic issues and so it's just a really fascinating book she's a good writer has a very clear and articulate voice that I really appreciate, a very clear, like, clear sense of voice, I guess. You know how authors, like, know who they are and where they're coming from. Like, she obviously does, and you can feel that in the book. So uh, this one's just really interesting, like, another perspective on the criminal justice system that I, I didn't know about, and so I'm learning some about these new principles and ideas that I think are really cool and interesting. So The Power of Dignity, How Transforming Justice Can Heal Our Communities by Judge Victoria Pratt. Gosh, yeah, that sounds really good. My first new pick for this week is Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands by Kelly Lytle Hernandez, uh, published by W.W. Norton, which is the story of the Magonistas, who were um, these migrant rebels that started the 1910 Mexican Revolution, but from the United States. And the reason they were called Magonistas is they were led by a radical named Ricardo Flores Magon, and they were journalists, miners, migrant workers who organized these Mexican workers and Americans to this uh, revolutionary cause that was protesting against the Mexican dictator Porfirio Diaz. And Porfirio Diaz, the reason they were against him in part was that he was very pro, like, U.S. imperialists. So kind of people that we would think of as um, sort of like Gilded Age robber barons, if you can count 1910 as still the Gilded Age, uh, which is sort of the progressive age. But anyway, so like people like Guggenheim and Rockefeller, right, are trying to basically come into Mexico, take its resources and leave in this imperialist move. And Porfirio Diaz was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. 
<laughs> the people of Mexico said, obviously, we were like, no. So you, the U.S. wanted to protect Porfirio Diaz. So you had all of these people from the U.S. Uh, government hunting for Magonistas. And apparently capturing Ricardo Flores Magon was one of the FBI's very first cases. So this story, like, it's not just the story of Mexico. It also it is, like, very involved in American history and uh, the sort of working together of Mexicans and Americans and sort of, like, early-ish Mexican-American population in the U.S. So, and I watched Kelly Lytle Hernandez I watched a, I think it's UCLA video, which was like copying that, I forget what magazine does it, maybe Vogue, where it's like 99 questions with whoever, mm-hmm. like 147. So they did like 37 questions with like Professor Hernandez and she's like walking down the streets of LA and this student <laughs> is interviewing her about like, oh, like this building was built by, you know, like convict labor and all this stuff. And she's talking about the huge issue of mass incarceration. And she's so like personable and smart i just love people like that so i was very excited about this book um that video is like five years old so this is her new work but again it's bad mexicans race empire and revolution in the borderlands by kelly lytle hernandez that sounds super good and you know i was just as you were talking about it i was you mentioned that it was one of the first cases for the fbi like that's a book i want to read it's just like all of the FBI's like most early cases, because I feel like a lot of like interesting stories are like, this was an early case of the FBI. And I like I've never I'm sure there are books about the beginning of the FBI, oh. but I don't think I've ever read one. Yeah, ditto. Because I think that would be interesting to like, what are the cases that like set the FBI up to be the FBI as we think of it today? But that sounds really fascinating. Blasted Hoover. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Very excellent. All right. So I will uh, preface this by saying the reason that this book got on my attention is because the subtitle has a bunch of words in it that I really like in nonfiction. And I was, that's why, that's why I picked it up. I, the subtitle, uh, it's called Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking murder and a global maritime conspiracy. And it's by Matthew Campbell and Kit Shell. Uh, comes out or came out May 3rd from Portfolio. And these two authors are both Bloomberg Businessweek magazine reporters. And so this is a, a true crime story of a maritime hijacking that turns out to not just be a hijacking, but actually a giant, massive conspiracy that also involves an unsolved murder. There's a lot of stuff going on, but I love all of those things. So the uh, hijacking that sort of sets off this whole story happened in July 2011 when this oil tanker called the Brilliant Virtuoso was drifting in the Gulf of Aden, which was a um, very treacherous place for the shipping boats to be because that is close to Somalia. And so this is the time when Somali pirates were taking over boats all the time. And so a group of Somali pirates attacked and set the the boat on fire, which obviously is a big deal because it was an oil tanker full of oil. (laughs) And so eventually they get that under control and everything is fine. The crew is saved. Like the hijacking doesn't seem to go the way that the pirates hoped that it would and everything's fine. But then uh, this guy named David Mockett, who's a surveyor working for Lloyd's of London, um, goes to inspect the damaged vessel. And he just like had a lot of questions about why things were the way they were. And like, how did the pirates get on the boat so easily? And if they like wanted to steal the ship, why did they then light the whole thing on fire? So he, you know, starts to investigate and tries to understand this. And then then he's murdered. And so this is, uh, the book is about then the investigation into his murder, like, 
why, what did he find out, what was what was trying to be covered up. And so that's kind of the, the crime part of the story. But then it's also like a much more elaborate story about like shipping and the business of shipping, which is very um, complicated and also like badly regulated. And there's a lot in there. It's a business book. So there's a lot in there about like ships that go and get registered or flagged or like supported by countries that have very uh, limited laws about how ships have to operate and how they take care of their crews and all of these other different things. So it's about this uh, conspiracy and this particular hijacking and then also kind of a larger look at the U.S., like the world shipping trade, which I hadn't really thought a lot about. But then, um, you know, like as we've been talking all about all these like supply chain things, I'm now like much more interested in just the whole idea of like what is going on with all of this like stuff that we all have to ship all over the the world by boat. So there's a lot of stuff in here, but kind of taking business and attaching it to a true, true crime story is probably the best way to get me to uh, understand business because otherwise I find it very difficult. But if I've got a like true crime to hang it around, I think that makes it more interesting. So Dead in the Water, A True Story of Hijacking, Murder, and a Global Maritime Conspiracy by Matthew Campbell and Kit Chell. Well, I never really think about international shipping. I don't either. But then, you know, like we've been talking all this time about like supply chains and all of that. And now I'm like more interested in it. And I want to I wanna understand it better. Yeah. Wow. And that's also like not super focused on the murder part, which I feel like you you tend to prefer uh, is the, the non-murdery mm-hmm. true crime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that seems good. Yes. But then like hijacking global conspiracy, like all good things. <laughs> uh, also on the seas yes. is my other new release, which is Born to be Hanged, the epic story of the gentleman pirates who raided the South Seas, rescued a princess and stole a fortune by Keith Thompson's from Little Brown. That's such a great title. Sorry. It's a very good, very good title. Uh, Keith Thompson is a novelist. This is his first nonfiction work, which I can be a little suspect of novelists writing nonfiction, but also with stories like this, sometimes it's better because they're not like, let's talk about all of the stores they kept on board the ship. Instead, he just like <laughs> keeps the story going, uh, which first, again, this this particular book exists to be like, here is a fun adventure story from the past that actually happened. And in this case, it is 1680. We're in the golden age of piracy before they were all hunted down and on the Pacific coastline of uh, Spanish colonized South America. So this is a group of almost 400 pirates that joined together. They were inspired by Captain Morgan. Sorry. Oh, gosh. And they they just basically went on this series of raids. They helped a, a indigenous peoples rescue a chief's daughter who was being held prisoner by the Spanish in Panama, which is just like, oh, my gosh, that does sound not real. But it <laughs> happened. They captured Spanish galleons and went back to the Caribbean where um, some of them were captured and put on trial. Some were acquitted. It was just very like, can you imagine hundreds of pirates? Yes, that's terrifying. (laughs) That would be so scary. And they call it a potent mix of low-life scallywags and a rare (laughs) breed of gentleman buccaneers. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so fun. It's very, very fun. I mean, people died. But like, you know, (laughs) oh... (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a long time ago, so 
It's just, if you're looking for like a fun pirate story, especially one of the reasons I picked this is because everyone is so into Our Flag Means Death right now. Mm-hmm. And it, I think Our Flag Means Death is set a little later based on, I haven't watched it really, but based on how they're dressed. I think it's a little later, like maybe 1700s. But this is still all Golden Age of Piracy time, men on board a ship, some ladies, but not many, um, <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> doing pirate things so if you're interested it is born to be hanged the epic story of the gentleman pirates who raided the south seas rescued a princess and stole a fortune by keith thompson i just i can't get over that title it's so good it's really really good this is again novelists i mean it could have been the marketing department but maybe keith thompson came up with it and with that let's hear from our second sponsor Awesome. All right. So now we're going to jump into our theme for this week, which we're going to talk about books about voting, which uh, I think is a perennially important topic. Uh, We're coming into another election year. It feels like we're like always in an election year, but whatever. And so just talking about if you want to learn about voting, here are some books that we want to recommend. So um, before we get into our full recommendations, I want to just put in a quick plug for One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy by Carol Anderson, uh, which is just a really great, pretty quick survey look at voter suppression and how it affects different um, BIPOC communities. Um, she, Carol Anderson is great. She does such a good job of sort of synthesizing a lot of complicated stuff. So if there's just one book you read because you want something like quick and to be like, all right, I think I have a general idea of what's going on, I highly recommend that one. But I think we've talked about it a bunch of times, so I didn't want to officially pick it. But I couldn't talk about voting without mentioning it. My first official pick is called Drawing the Vote, an Illustrated Guide to Voting in America by Tommy Jenkins. Uh, It's illustrated by Katie Lacker. And this is a graphic novel book about uh, the history of voting. So the book, the first chapter of the book sort of sets the stage where Jenkins is a teacher and he kind of talks about his experience with his students over like the 2016, 2018 and coming into the 2020 election and how they were super, or excuse me, 2008, 2016 and coming into 2020. And so he talks about how they were super engaged and excited in 2008 and how that kind of dwindled off over time. Uh, And he sort of sets the stage of like, is this because they like are just less interested or do they feel like their votes don't matter anymore? And maybe a way to understand that is to go back. And so then it goes all the way back to the beginning of the United States and tracks the history of voting uh, going forward. So it's uh, a really, I think, nice, comprehensive history. Obviously, it can't go into super great detail on any like one topic, but it's illustrated. It is accessible. Um, He does a nice job of kind of setting the different concerns that have come up related to voting and how those have kind of existed over time and subtly changed as different challenges to voting rights have come up. It sort of does have some like complex ideas and statistics and different like big voting issues, but it's the artistic style just is really um, fun. It's very simple. And I just think it's a great, um, especially if you're somebody who isn't super familiar, but wants like a nice, fast paced overview of voting and how voting has been challenged over time. I think this is a really great one to pick up. So Drawing the Vote, an Illustrated Guide to Voting in America by Tommy Jenkins, illustrated by Katie Lacker. That's awesome. I love an illustrated guide. I do, too. I do. I've been looking again at um the Amazon's abolitionist sort of history of, of women in mm-hmm. the world by Mickey Kendall. And that's all well, yeah. illustrated. And it's just like really satisfying. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just, 
And you also feel like you're reading so much because there's pictures and not as many words. Exactly. But anyway, my first pick for this section is Our Time Is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Fight for a Fair America by Stacey Abrams. This came out fairly recently, and there was was kind of like a last-minute COVID-19 addendum to it, to talking about the importance of the 2020 election, which, yes, indeed. So Stacey Abrams, we start out talking about, like, at the very beginning, she talks about her loss in the gubernatorial election in 2018 uh, in Georgia, going against... Brian Kemp, and how she thought that the election was conducted unfairly. Only, unlike other cases, she had actual reasons to back that up. (laughs) And she goes back and starts talking about her family and being raised in Mississippi by her parents and sort of like her early memories of voting and like what her grandmother's experience of voting was um, as a Black woman. And it's just like that personal piece is really fascinating. And then she kind of just goes into all of the ways that uh, like these sort of like voter suppression techniques that have happened over the years. Like there's like voter ID, exact match policies or just like needing like an ID, um, restriction of early and absentee voting, ballot rejection, gerrymandering, malfunctioning machines, really long line, like all of these things, right, to try to keep people from voting when we are professedly democracy i mean we're a republic but like mm-hmm. kind of democracy is supposed to uh be able to vote for our leaders without uh, these restrictions but here we are so it it sounds like it could be overwhelming in terms of you know oh gosh everything is broken but stacy abrams is i think very good at being inspirational and instead is like here is how we can fix this and and she also not only does that but she proved that she could work towards making mm-hmm. things better by her work in Georgia. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I just feel like that's mainly what people were talking about in that election was how much work, how many people were registered, what they were doing to try. And then since then, there has been work to undo that, right? Because she was so successful at making things more uh, more fair is not right. Is it just fairer? <laughs> 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 Which is as it is in the title, right? Fight for a fair America. So I feel like if you want to read something by someone who's a good writer, who is also um, doing a great job, (laughs) just like with, (laughs) and like actually doing the work in what she says she believes in, I totally recommend this. So again, that is Our Time Is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Fight for a Fair America by Stacey Abrams. She is so cool. And like you said, like a person who both like knows what to do and then like goes out and does it. And that is a very inspiring combination, I think. And she writes novels. Like what? Yeah. She was a, she got a like a guest thing in Star Trek. I don't know anything about that. I just saw a Twitter a tweet about it. But oh, I saw the photo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like so cool. So cool. Great pick. My next pick is, I think, related. Uh, it's called Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy by Tiffany Cross. Uh, so Tiffany Cross is a media and political analyst. So she goes on like talk shows talking about like democracy and <laughs> all of those kinds of things. And so um, she, as an African-American woman, has been called on pretty often to talk about the role that African-Americans have played uh, in shaping elections and um trying to talk about like black voters. And so this book is really trying to explore like what we think about black voters and how much of that is not true and how there are a lot of assumptions about black voters that don't really like get backed up by evidence. And so 
she talks about how black voters were critical to Democrats winning in 2018, uh, that like 90% of black voters supported Democratic candidates compared to just 53% of all voters. And so there was this, she talks about how there was like this media narrative that like this was kind of unheard of or it was a fluke or something strange. And she uh, is like, actually, no, black voters have played a crucial role in shaping American democracy for decades and decades. Um, And so she kind of advocates on behalf of black voters and talks about how while they do vote similarly, like there are a lot of differences in what black voters are looking for. And then the book also looks at how how black voters are consistently excluded or tried to be, how we try to exclude black voters. And so it's kind of about those different paradoxes that we, that the Democratic Party in particular needs black voters, but that also they're often pushed out by various policies and uh, stuff like that. So um, there's just a lot of stuff about it. The voice of this one is also super fun. She is a political analyst, so she knows how to like write in sound bites and write in kind of provocative ways that are going to get your attention and make you think. And so she brings that clear voice to the book. And so it's it's really fun to read because she just is sort of not holding anything back and trying to explain her views and what she's learned and why um, support for Black voters is so important uh, in the many of the same ways that Stacey Abrams does. But eh, I don't want to compare them because I haven't read the Stacey Abrams book, but um, they're talking about a lot of the same things. So I think that this is another good one that just gives an idea of what's going on with voting and voter suppression, which I feel like we all need to pay more attention to. So Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy by Tiffany Cross. I love when people are good at their jobs. I do too, right? They're like, I get why you're a political analyst because you like know how to make things memorable. And I appreciate that about the book. My friend was asking why I've been reading all this men's history this year Mm. when normally Mm -hmm. I'm very much the opposite. And I've been so into Lincoln. And then I just did the Shackleton book. And I was like, I think the theme is times of crisis and people being very good at what they do. And, like, Mm. getting the people under them through it, right? Because, yeah, Lincoln got assassinated, but he kept the country united. And that seemed impossible at the time. And Shackleton saved all his men. So I was like, I think I just need right now (laughs) to read people who are very good at their jobs doing them well and, like, keeping people safe. So, like, the Stacey Abrams book and the Tiffany Cross book both remind me of that. Because I'm like, oh, these are people who are very competent, who are working to keep people safe and make sure that their voices are heard. And it's just, it just makes me feel better because sometimes I just feel so ineffective. (laughs) I'm, like, sitting Mm -hmm. here in my apartment. Um, It's just nice to read about people doing stuff well. So, yeah. Okay. Um, Everyone vote. Yes. Okay. Uh, my last pick is Suffrage, Women's Long Battle for the Vote by Ellen Carroll Dubois. I don't think I've talked about this one before. We've covered a lot of other books about the suffrage movement, and mm-hmm. I just kind of added this one in for fun as like a change up. Obviously, we've talked about the Women's Hour. We've talked about Vanguard, which is about the history of Black women voting. Uh, it came out the other year, which is very exciting because that was the first first actually longer book about that. But Mm -hmm. in Suffrage, Women's Long Battle for the Vote, Ellen Carroll Dubois is a historian. She talks, kind of sets the normal stage of women's voting rights in America started in the 1840s and talks about Seneca Falls and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass being a very early supporter. I'm so proud of him. And then (laughs) that's another biography I need to read about a dude this year. And then uh, talking about these sort of 
grant of the vote to white women in 1920 and then the slow gain of the vote for other groups like black women east asian women and eventually native american women which i don't remember what year that was took a long time though and also talking about things like ida b wells's contribution uh and you know sort of like fighting against this very racist narrative from a lot of the white women suffragists so I just like I think it the reason I would recommend this one is it gives a very good clear narrative of like if you're just looking for like a straight shot of like I just want one thing talking about from the 1840s to like you know up to the 20th century or through the 20th century um I think this does a good job of it and it's not terribly long so uh and I feel like books like The Woman's Hour, right, that focuses on specifically the mm-hmm. passage of the 19th Amendment. And this is much more like the whole story. So, again, that is Suffrage, Women's Long Battle for the Vote by Ellen Carroll Dubois. Excellent. I'm glad you I, – I figured you would have at least one women's suffrage book. So I'm glad glad you did because I feel like then we would just not be on brand if we had not included one. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. I am in the middle of the audiobook of a YA nonfiction book called The Women All Spies Fear, Codebreaker Elizabeth Smith Friedman and Her Hidden Life by Amy Butler Greenfield. Uh, And I... um, when I was on vacation earlier this year, I read a book about uh, historical fiction about codebreakers in Batchley Park, and it reminded me how much I love uh, codebreaking books. And so I've been on the look lookout for other books about codebreakers, particularly women codebreakers, because I find that particularly fascinating. Uh, and so this is one I found when I was out for Indie Bookstore Day. It's YA nonfiction. Um, Elizabeth, she worked with her husband doing codebreaking uh, throughout World War II and beyond. Um, I'm not super far into it yet, but it's uh, it's it's all, everything I wanted. It's about code breaking and women and all sorts of good stuff. So, uh, the woman all spice fear codebreaker Elizabeth Smith Friedman and her hidden life by Amy Butler Greenfield. Did you watch that Bletchley Park show? Yes, the BBC one. Mm-hmm. That was good. So good. It was really scary. Yes, very scary. I was not anticipating the scary part, but it was good. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch season two because it was scary. <laughs> <laughs> That's, fair. That's fair. Okay. I am reading Lincoln in Private by Ronald C. White. It's my seventh Lincoln audiobook for the year. <laughs> and um, Lincoln in Private. So Michelle was like, haven't you just gotten the same story over and over again? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> like, there are certain key moments, like the Gettysburg Address, that – All the books we'll touch on. But every book I've read has been about a different aspect of Lincoln's life, which is amazing. So uh, the most recent ones were Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief and Lincoln and his relationship with the Todd family. But this one is very short. It's like a five-hour audiobook and by one of Lincoln's biographers. So he's also written very long book about Abraham Lincoln. But this one, he's like, so Lincoln had these notes just lying around that he wrote to himself. And let's talk about those. <laughs> just like, I'm telling you, I don't think anyone's life has been more poured over than Lincoln. Yeah. The fact that it's like, let's just write a book about the little notes he wrote to himself. And that's the whole book. It's really interesting because I wasn't really expecting that. But it's talking about like, Lincoln's notes on his visit to Niagara Falls. And he just like wrote his impressions of visiting Niagara Falls. And they talked about the reason that he probably went there was that the year before the falls had stopped 
Like, huh. Yeah. Because of a, like an ice jam. And everyone was like, oh. And people like <laughs> went down and they found like relics from the, not relics, but like artifacts from like the War of 1812, like oh. uh, guns and stuff. And then people were like, get out of there. We don't know when they're going to start up again. <laughs> but That's true. But after that, all these people went because they were like, what if it happens again? And we don't know if we can see that. What if it happens like and they're blocked up forever, which obviously did not happen. But they didn't know. It's just been really interesting, and I've been really enjoying it. So, Lincoln in Private by Ronald C. White. That story gives me an idea of a uh, historical mystery where that happens, and then they find a skeleton, and someone has to figure out who got murdered, and then their body got dumped in Niagara Falls. Ooh. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. You could write that. I don't I don't know if I could, but someone should. That would be a great book. <laughs> In conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. If you have a minute, we'd love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so people can find the podcast more easily. And while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I'm Kim Ugra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>